This is a podcast from the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law at UNSW. For more information, go to www.caldorcentre.unsw.edu.au. We'll make a start. Good afternoon. My name is Jane McAdam. I'm the Director of the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law. Uh, thank you all so much for coming along to hear Professor Jeff Gilbert, who's going to talk to us today about UN interoperability and responses to forced displacement. Now, Jeff has been a, a visiting professorial fellow here at UNSW since 2012. He's um, right in the middle of teaching the International Refugee Law course. Um, over, just taught over four days, so on his day off, he of course decided he'd <laughs> give, a, give a lecture, which is wonderful for us. Um, Jeff comes to us from the University of Essex, where he is a law professor and um, was formerly head of school on two occasions, oh, and got yeah. <laughs> punishment, and the director of the Human Rights Centre there. Um, he was previously editor-in-chief of the International Journal of Refugee Law from 2002 to 15, and then kindly passed that mantle over to me. He's now editor emeritus and, um, and remains on the board and a very valuable source of uh, guidance, I have to say. He um, has held many different uh, appointments over the years, advising different bodies, including UNHCR, who's consulted there from 2014 to 15, working on your issues. Um, and in, in the past, he's also done um, advisory work for the Parliamentary Assembly of the Council of Europe, um, human rights training on behalf of the Council of Europe, UNHCR, with the Russian Federation, Georgia, Bosnia-Herzegovina, Croatia, Macedonia, and Kosovo. And um, he actually advised governments in that part of the world about um, various uh, laws, legislation, and so on. He also is a barrister in London, a man of many talents. And in addition to his, I guess we call key expertise in international refugee law, he also specialises in international criminal law, um, international humanitarian law and human rights law, and um, the protection of minorities. Anything else, Abner? Sorry. He barracks for Everton. And he barracks for Everton. There we go. I didn't know that. <laughs> Jeff, I'll hand over to you, and I'm going to sit over there so I can yeah. see the slide. Okay. Uh, the only thing to say is, after listening to all that, I still felt, yeah, jack of all trades, master. <laughs> yeah. uh, let's not go there. Um, right. I should point out that I've, I arrived in the country at 4.30 last Friday. Okay. So, therefore, there is an element, shall we say, of jet lag still within me. Uh, as far as I am concerned, I am just waking up. It's not quite breakfast. Okay. That's the easiest way to imagine what state I'm in. Okay. So I'm actually going to probably read a lot and follow along. As Jane said, uh, I was a consultant whoops, yeah, that'll do, for UNHCR 2014-15 with Anna Magdalena Rouch, who was um, a former Essex student she now works for UNHCR. Uh, and we were in, asked to look at rule of law engagement for solutions. And we ended up going to well, Geneva for obvious reasons, but uh, Niger, uh, Colombia. We also went around the agencies in New York as well. That's us in Colombia, Alpha Stifle Reader. And I'll come back to that. We're standing in a school, okay? 
on the edge of a school, and as you can probably guess from the umbrellas, it was throwing it down. Okay, right. Rule of law. Uh, term of art used by legal theorists, constitutional lawyers, and it's used to, use, used to explain how law might be created, the procedural rules, or to determine if it possesses the right qualities to be, quotes, law. That's what you use rule of law for. That's a, so you've got a procedural approach. Is it put together properly? And a substantive approach. Is it the sort of thing that we really want to be called law? The easiest way to understand that is um, take a look at Nazi Germany in the 1930s. Yes, they passed laws in an appropriate manner. Were those laws all what one would call proper law? Okay, the substantive versus the procedural approach. Okay. The positivists are normally seen as satisfied with the procedural understanding, as it being passed in the appropriate way, while natural lawyers look to see if a claimed law meets a substantive quality threshold. Although Long Fuller um, tried to argue, uh, through his principles of legality, uh, that there were quality requirements in his those eight requirements, that sort of married up a proceduralist approach with a moral quality. Um, Dworkin, with his model principle of community, model of principal community, assumes that law is more than just a rule test. It's possible to apply all those theories to the UN's approach to rule of law. You can do it, okay? But you don't get very far. It doesn't help us understand how one can operationalise the interoperability of the United Nations. Because you shouldn't be thinking of the UN as one monolithic whole. We often talk about the United Nations. Okay? I'm going off script because it's easier. Okay? One shouldn't think of the UN as just a monolithic whole. It isn't. It's a lot of different agencies. And there's a lot of turf war that goes on between those agencies. And to a certain extent, this debate about what rule of law is, how it should be implemented, is part of that turf war. Okay, that's what we discovered. In Poland, it's a turf war in the two headquarters, in Geneva and in New York. Is it a turf war out, on, out in the field? No. Out in the field, different parts of the UN actually operate together. So you take someone like Colombia, Columbia there. They've got a resident coordinator there. The resident coordinator arrived and said, we're all going to work as one, which is what the UN should. And they all meet and they all do work as one. So UNHCR, UNDP, Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights, UNICEF, World Food Programme, all act together. Talk about New York, and you go around New York, or go to Geneva, and it's a different... So headquarters versus field is part of the debate in rule of law I'm not going to go into that side of it I will be looking at three dichotomies in today's discussion but what I want to get across is that to try and think of the UN as having one unified approach to rule of law no, doesn't work can't work which is a bit of a problem which is why, if I go back a slide, yep, Humpty Dumpty. When I use a word, or three words, 
it means, okay, just what I choose it to mean, neither more nor less. Okay? And when you look at rule of law within the UN, never been true. Okay. So, come on, scroll down. That's what rule of law is in the UN. Okay. 2004 statement, the rule of law is a concept of the very part of the organization's mission. Okay. That's from the Secretary General. It's not that they didn't know about rule of law before 2004. Okay. <clears throat> they had, it's, it's there in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. The Universal Declaration of Human Rights in its preamble talks about human rights being protected by rule of law. The Charter okay, itself has a whole load of references to human rights. The interaction between human rights and rule of law is important. And this is where we're going to get into the procedural substantive debate. Proceduralist debate versus the substantive debate, which I sort of indicated at the beginning. What approach does the UN take? Now, as I said, you can apply those theories. You could apply the procedural theory, you could apply the substantive theory to how the UN operates. Okay. Because, and this is where I prefer, rather than this traditional procedural debate, the thick and thin debate that Paul Craig put together in his article in Public Law. The thick and thin debate ties in much more closely with how the UN operates, where one talks about narrow and broad approaches to rule of law. Because for the UN, Rule of law is less a way of thinking about how laws are created, how societies are created, but more a way of trying to work out how to implement a set of standards, usually in post-conflict situations, because that's where they have the most hands-on application within states. So, in the wake of the peace deal, in Colombia, uh, um, one can imagine that all the UN actors who've been there for years are now going to be thinking, okay, how can we use rule of law in a rule of law society? Because one of the great things about Colombia is it's got a very strong tradition of rule of law. In fact, a very broad understanding of that concept as well through the constitutional court. What's been difficult for Colombia is trying to implement that understanding on the ground. So, if the UN doesn't use rule of law in the way that constitutional laws and legal theorists use it, okay, why do we, why? Only because they, they came up in 2004 with this, they talk about rule of law as their approach to implementing what they want on the ground. Why did they do that? Well, there's a small problem with international law. I, I don't know how many of you in the room are carrying carry an Australian passport. I'm assuming the majority of you carry an Australian passport. I don't know how many of you were actually born in Australia. Okay. Moved here. No matter where you were born, no matter what passport you carry, okay, you are living and working in Australia, and you don't get to choose which laws apply to you. 
you constantly say, well, actually, I don't like that. Okay, I'm going to opt out of that. Because <laughs> let's assume you were actually born here, you carry a Australian passport. Okay. You had no choice in being born. You arrived, and they basically said, welcome, and here's the laws that apply to you. You, you sort of, you're, you're sold a set of laws at birth. You get them. International society doesn't work like that. States don't operate like that. States opt in to which laws they want. International law is consensual. You ratify the treaties you want to ratify. There is customary international law. You can be a persistent object risk. We won't go there. Okay. There is, it's just cogent. Let's not go even tread on that because it's a small agreement. Okay. But the idea of international society, the international community of states, is one where law is consensual. It's like joining a particular club. Okay. You join the clubs you want to join, and you only join the clubs that have the rules that you actually like. If a club, particular club, society doesn't have rules you like, you just don't join it. That's how international law works, okay? So, we've got this very broad understanding of international law, okay? In which I put this in bold, okay? Rule of law concept consistent with international human rights norms and standards. So said the Secretary General in 2004. Now, in 2008, he came out with another one. You don't need to worry about that. You couldn't really get going. 2011, there was a big meeting of lots of different actors just outside New York, <coughs> and the golf club just outside New York, green uh, trees. And then in 2012, we have a high-level meeting of the General Assembly, which comes out with General Assembly Resolution 67-1, um, which may be some, yeah, I'll find it somewhere in this PowerPoint presentation. Uh, in which the General Assembly adopts, sort of agrees with the whole load of this and also applies it to the UN. So this doesn't just apply to states, it applies to the UN itself, and we'll come back to that at the end. Okay. But note that lovely little bit involved in the middle. <coughs> the rule of law is consistent. And the General Assembly says, yeah, we like rule of law. International law in special human rights standards as set out in treaties. We have to ratify those treaties, otherwise you're not part of that club. Rule of law? Ooh, says the UN. Well, you all like rule of law, and we've said rule of law incorporates human rights. So if you have this broad understanding of what rule of law means, and you give it a substantive content of human rights, then it's a very good way for UN operations within states, regardless of whether that state has ratified the treaty or not, to try and get that state, when it applies rule of law standards within its own system, to accept human rights values. So it's useful for the UN, it's useful for states. Oh, sorry, it's useful for the UN when, when dealing with states. I've just 
thing. We actually made two ideas, and I want to explain those two ideas. So, the first one is easy. the substantive approach. Okay? The substantive approach means that rule of law isn't just about having sort of a method of getting your laws onto the book section books. It's all about equality for those laws, too. What quality do those laws possess? And in this particular case, we're going to be achieving that standard as the quality of what laws possess. But then I said a broad approach. Within the UN, there were two understandings of what rule of law required. And in fact, within UNDP itself, they had both, just to make life difficult. There was a narrow approach. Narrow approach. Logically, there is a broad approach. So I'll come to it. By the way, the narrow and broad approaches have both procedural and substantive elements. So don't try and sort of say, oh, well, narrow equals procedural. No, it doesn't. The narrow approach has procedural and substantive. The broad approach has procedural and substantive. Well, that's, that's getting too difficult for a Wednesday lunchtime. <laughs> Which day is it is part of my problem. But the broad approach, the narrow approach says, rule of law just deals with policing, corrections, and justice. That's all we're bothered about. If we put in place a judicial system with police that obey the law and allow people to get to the courts, we've satisfied rule of law. That's all we need. And there is actually a global focal point in New York, GFK, on policing, corrections, and justice. And that's the early concept of how you do rule of law in the UN. Then people came along and said, yeah, you know what, that's not enough. <coughs> rule of law is intrinsic to the entire society. It's about understanding all aspects of human rights. So not just policing, corrections, and justice side, not just fair trial, not just no arbitrary detention, not just no torture. Okay. It's about all civil and political rights. It's about all economic, social and cultural rights too. Housing, land and property, for instance, would be part of, would be instilled with rule of law standards. And that's important when we come to think about this in relation to solutions for displaced persons. So this broader approach, which also has its own little group in New York, the Rule of Law Coordination and Resources Group, ROLCRAG. Okay. Uh, the GFP is actually quite a small group within uh, the UN. ROLCRAG includes practically everybody, including the but they all apply rule of law approaches. So the bigger the turf, the bigger the turf you've got to play with, okay, the more the more useful it is to different parts of the UN. You can have more people playing rule of law if there's a rule of law budget, and you've got a bigger field to play with on. Yeah, it's ridiculous. I know. We're trying to save the world, and lo and behold, we're worrying about budget lines. <laughs> but then again, when the UN's budget is dependent on states giving it money, and the states don't give it the money, because the, debt, uh, the, de the UN back payment is just ridiculous, 
And when they, when they do manage to give money, they give money for specific purposes and tie it to those specific purposes. So let's talk about UN interoperability. Mandates. False dichotomy. Turf wars cause problems. The problem within the UN, and this is where I'm going to start focusing on displaced populations, is that at one level, only UNHCR has a mandate for refugees. And it will fight to the death to keep that mandate. But it is refugees, and it is refugees only. Or rather, it only deals with refugees. It has when it's internally displaced persons, persons who have not crossed an international border, then you have the global protection cluster, which brings together lots of bits of the UN dealing together. But even there, UNHCR has a lead on conflict, displaced IDPs, and it has a co-lead on camp management and security. Anybody care to guess what the modal average time spent as a displaced person is? I say modal average because there are economists in the room and they will tell you if I went average, they'd say modal mean and it's actually quite different at this moment. So the modal average time spent as a displaced person? Seven years. Seven, I have an offer of seven years, high or lower. I think it's a TV game that does that. But five, five, I have five, lower, five. Anybody? Twenty. 20 years is the modal average time. Just so that you can see that I understand a little bit of maths, the mean average is only 12 years. What's the difference? Why? Because there's so many Syrians who haven't been out for a very long time. So they have skewed the average down for the mean average, but the modal average is 20 years. There are people sitting on the Ethiopian Eritrean border who've actually been displaced for 50 years. There are great grandchildren. In, this, in refugee camps. Yeah, so when I get angry about this, you begin to understand why. Within the UN, you think of humanitarian actors and you think of development actors. And the humanitarian actors include UNHCR, World Food Programme. Okay. They're the ones who go in, there's a crisis. Development actors, UNDP, they tend to work with states. UNICEF is a development actor. What you're trying to achieve with the rule of law approach that integrates all the actors for the purposes of solutions is to realize that if you've got a modal average time being displaced for 20 years, the idea of thinking of refugees as just humanitarian crisis is ridiculous. They're going to be there for a while. They are going to be in a particular state for a very long time. And the idea that the state should warehouse them somewhere in the desert for all that time, without giving them the right to employment, which is actually provided for in Article 17 of the um, 1951 Convention of States of Refugees. Article 18, I'm looking at Jane, so that could she will know. 17 or 18. 17 is right. No, you said 17 is the next one, so I'm not going to 
are not just a humanitarian crisis. They are a long-term part of society. UNDP, UNHCR need to work together. UNDP and its development programs for a state, when it's drafting its undafts and its undefs, the United Nations uh, Development and Assistance Framework, United Nations Democracy Fund, undafts and undefs, uh, needs to build in refugees. Now, the Millennium Development Goals didn't mention refugees and displaced persons. We wondered whether the Sustainable Development Goals of 2015 would. And they didn't in the end. The SDGs don't mention migration. Okay? The uh, Paris Plan on Climate Change does. But, and loads of people were really disappointed when the Sustainable Development Goals did not mention migration, displaced persons. Personally, I'm not. I'm quite happy, because to my mind, that means states have accepted that displaced persons are part of that society, and the Sustainable Development Goals, therefore, which apply for 2030, okay, are just as relevant to them as they are to their the population. Unless you start building state capacity, which is what the UN is meant to be doing with the rule of law, building state capacity so that it covers not just the citizens of a particular country, but also those who are right. I want to tell you about Niger very briefly, then I'm going to go to Colombia. And then I'm probably going to sit down and show. No, I'm not. I'm going to do one more thing, then I'm going to sit down and show. Niger, it is the poorest country on the planet. 187 out of 187 in UNDP's humanitarian index. In the north, Malian refugees fleeing Al Qaeda as the Islamic threat. In the south, Nigerian refugees, Nigerian returnees, fleeing Boko Haram. We went, Anna and I went to Difa. We, also, we went to the north as well, but okay. We went to Difa, which is in the southeast. So you've got the poorest country, and Difa is the poorest part of Niger. So the poorest part of the poorest country on the planet, all these people come fleeing Boko Haram. They just, the local people allowed these people who came in, the Nigerians and the Nigerian attorneys, to just build shelters for themselves on the side of their own houses. UNHCR provided them with the sort of building materials. Niger, with the help of the UN, World Food Programme in particular, as well as UNHCR, UNDP, is building those displaced persons into its planning so that on the basis, they're not, they're not likely to be going back to Nigeria or Mali in the near future. Mali's a slightly better bet, okay? Because there is at least a peace deal at present. They build them in. They take them into account. They are part of Niger's planning. So it's a rule of law society that everybody within that society, capacity building by the state, <coughs> promotes and enhance the protection of the individual. That's the way to think about it. A substantive rule of law that applies to all aspects of the society, of all its human rights. So not just police corrections and justice, but land. For instance, the Malians who come from the Malians who come across, they're nomads. They move with cattle around. So what's happened? Why would, you put, why would you put displaced nomads into a particular area and say you've got to stay there now? They used to move around. So with the Nigerian government, 
they've been allowed within Niger to have a zone of welcome. Um, I cut my French is appalling. Zone de Coy. Okay. That wasn't too bad. Zone de Coy de And that ZAR allows the Malian nomads to actually graze their cattle in a nomadic fashion within Niger itself. How do you do that? By getting UNDP to make certain that the development framework for Niger includes those nomadic <coughs> displaced refugees. Colombia, you saw us standing in a school. UNHCR provided the funds to build that school. Now, Jay, you are an expert on refugees. I'm an expert. See, I want to class participation. Is building schools part of UNHCR's mandate? Look at the shape. See, good answer. Okay. <coughs> Except, Artists of Florida, which is where we were standing, um, is 95% IDPs. So it's in the community of Soacha, which is next door to Bogota. From where we were standing, you see the President's Palace in Bogota. Light years away from reality. Alcatraz is an area where they just sort of put up whatever accommodation they can find, getting whatever materials they can find to do it. Okay. 95% IDBs. Sure, I mean, and the IDB, it's a 50-year war in Colombia. You've got grandchildren. Okay, they need schools. There was a school. Colombia provides schools for those kids, but they were all, it was a long way away, and the IDBs didn't have the money to get the children bus fare, so the children were allowed to have walked. If the children were walking, they were going to be, so, well, basically they could have been used for trafficking drugs, they could have been used for being trafficked themselves, they could just have been shot. So UNHCR says as part of our protection mandate, and as part of our education obligation towards refugees as well, because education is in there too, we will provide to a local NGO that will school themselves the funding so that the local NGO can build a school, rule of law society, education, access to education, okay, in a way that then also protects the children who are displaced. So it does act. So in terms of this, right, I want to... You ever said development dichotomy? I've already dealt with it. You can't, when you're talking 20 years displaced on average, Humanitarian development doesn't make sense. Protection solutions doesn't really make sense. Until you're registered, which is part of the initial part of protection and documented, you can't access the solutions. And the solutions are ongoing. They're not just about voluntary repatriation return, not just about resettlement of some third place, not just about local integration. The solutions are access to education, access to employment, access to healthcare, access to legal services. That's part of your solutions. And in fact, if you give refugees access to employment and access to education, the likelihood is that the first opportunity they will return. If you take a look at Somalia, which is, again, having problems today, if you've read the news, but that bomb went up in Mogadishu. When Somalia started moving towards peace, the first group that moved back were either the, either the 
want to actually move themselves or the children of those refugees who've gone to the US. The US have moved them out to Minnesota. But the Somali, yeah, so the Boers were the first people to go back to Mogadishu. So you educate, you provide employment opportunities, you give people security and all want to go back. It's all part of rule of law as well, okay, which leads to solutions. The only real true dichotomy is New York and Geneva. That's a true dichotomy. New York UN is all about states. Geneva is all about individuals. Okay, that's a little bit simplistic. I grant you. But that's a true dichotomy. But Geneva, New York, oh, I'm trying to get those two to talk to each other. The Security Council recognizing human rights. 1990s, got around to doing it for the first time. Recognizing refugees as part of the UN Security Council resolution against the 1990s. That's ridiculous. Think of what UN is about, Security Council is about, maintaining international peace and security, dealing with crises. What do you get in crises? Displacement. When does it work? Suddenly think, let's put the two together. 1990s. And when you've got a High Commissioner for Refugees based in Geneva, six hours' time difference from New York, you begin to see how difficult, why there is a real dichotomy between New York and Geneva, which explains why there's a problem with rule of law coordination within the UN at headquarters level, but not when you get onto the ground, because then they're all in the same time zone. Okay. Is rule of law against rights or is rule of law part of rights? Rule of law is not defined. Um, one of the arguments for it is that it's flexible. There's no obligations. You're not ratified a particular treaty. And you've got um, Alston at the World Bank saying you would be talking about the problem with the World Bank is it never talks about human rights. It likes rule of law because states like rule of law. And you're not going to get any grief from, state, from states about the World Bank telling us to abide by human rights. Just use rule of law instead. But unless rule of law is infused with human rights, what do we mean by rule of law? And there's a danger that states will backslide if you don't give rule of law a substantive conflict. But the benefit is that the rule of law brings to the state all states. <coughs> Problem with rule of law? It applies to the UN as well. The UN, according to the 2012 General Assembly Declaration, is bound by rule of law. And rule of law requires transparency and accountability. Two ideas that you don't really associate with UN operations. What happens when the UN screws up? How do you hold the UN accountable? If you want a good example of that, cholera in Haiti. Where the UN has finally admitted, hey, we might have had a part to play in causing that. But you know what? We've got immunity, so don't worry about it. You can't touch us. Is <coughs> rule of law a part of the UN as much as States, then the UN has got to potentially be accountable. But equally, states have got to be accountable to the UN for not paying up and for not fulfilling their obligations. It's a two-way street. 